morning. If I could have you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4 today. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. But before we get to 1 Peter, I need to take a quick detour uh, to the Gospels. One story uh, that is told, or one story that is repeated in all four of the Gospels is the story of what we call the triumphal entry. It's the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem the Sunday before he was crucified. And we celebrate that Sunday every year. We call it Palm Sunday. This is the day where Jesus comes into the city. He's riding on the back of a donkey. And he's met by crowds, cheering, adoring crowds, uh, laying palm branches on the ground before him. Offering him worship, offering him adoration. And they're all singing this song. They're singing a song. It's a song that was very important to the nation of Israel. This was a song actually that was sung every single year by Jews at Passover time. Uh, And it had been for generations. It was from the book of Psalms 118. The crowds are there welcoming Jesus into the city, and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quotation from Psalm 118, a very important, like I said, a very important psalm to Jews, especially at the time of Passover. It's a beautiful psalm, if you haven't read it. It's a beautiful psalm. In this psalm, we we read lines like, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. We read, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. It's in this psalm where we read the words, this is the the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it's this song... That as Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, that the crowds are singing, that the crowds are chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's right there from Psalm 118. This was a psalm that traditionally was sung by Jews as an anticipation of the son of David. That one of these days, the son of David would come and would liberate us, would save us. And they would, so they would sing this every year. And so when Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds are singing this song, what they're really saying is, Jesus is it. He's the one. He's the one who's coming in the name of the Lord to save us. He's it. In, a, in an ironic twist, later on in that same week on Friday the crowds would turn against Jesus. And on this Friday, crowds would gather together again, but this time, they're not gathering together to praise Jesus. This time, they're gathering together to cry out for his blood. Crucify him, they say. And I imagine it's some of the very same people that just the Sunday before were worshiping him. But see, Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. And so they turned. And what they probably didn't realize or recognize at that moment was that in their rejection of Jesus, they were also fulfilling some lines from the very same poem in the book of Psalms. 
Because in Psalm 118, we also read this line. We read, the stone the builders rejected has now become the capstone. So in rejecting Jesus, in rejecting Jesus, they were fulfilling this very same line. And unfortunately, unfortunately, this is far too common. It's far too common that that people will reject the very one who could save them, that people will reject the very one who can offer them hope. I, uh, uh, in a previous ministry um, in central Illinois, I was uh, preaching at a little country church in the middle of a cornfield in central Illinois. And uh, there was a woman who started coming to our church, and she came for several weeks. And um, uh, I went and visited her just to kind of introduce myself, introduce the church, uh, offered to answer any questions that she might have. We, had, we were having a nice conversation. She was telling me all, all the things that she appreciated about the church. Love the people there. People are so encouraging. Love the community that you have. Love, love singing songs. I, I just love the feeling that I get coming to your church. It's great. I do have one concern, though. I have one concern. You guys talk about this Jesus guy a lot. Uh, I mean... You pray in his name. You sing. It's almost like it's almost like you're worshiping this Jesus guy. It's like this weird Jesus cult you got going on there. And so I'm sitting there as a pastor. I'm like, yeah. Uh, I had this weird mixture of satisfaction mixed with mixed with disappointment. I was satisfied that at least she was getting it. At least she recognized that we were a Jesus place, a Jesus church, a Jesus people. But I was also really disappointed. Because she was tripping over that which was most important. She was stumbling over the one who has come to save us. She was missing it. And she was living out the lines of Psalm 118. She was missing out and rejecting the capstone. And there are far too many people who choose, for whatever reason, some, some people have intellectual reasons maybe, some people have uh, maybe emotional reasons or, or maybe even spiritual reasons, but there are far too many people who reject the one source of hope for their lives. And some of you, some of you, you know this personally, you know this painfully, that I feel like God has abandoned me. You know, we'll, we'll hear people all the time, like, God isn't there. God has abandoned me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't have my best interests at heart. And so we reject God. We turn our backs on God. And ironically and tragically, we turn our backs on the very one who is sent to save us, the very one who is sent to offer us hope, the very one who is sent to offer us meaning in our lives. The chief cornerstone. We stumble over it. We trip over it. And this isn't new. This isn't new. All the way through the New Testament, Jesus is at some times, at some moments, he's worshipped, he's adored, he's loved. And then in the next moment, sometimes by by the very same people, he's rejected. He's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's dismissed. And this continued on for the first Christians as well. I want to show you a picture up here on the screen. Uh, This is, is, uh, many scholars think that this dates back to as early as the 2nd or the 3rd century. This is, an, this is an ancient piece of graffiti. This is an ancient piece of graffiti. And you can see what's portrayed. There's a, there's a man on a cross, and he's portrayed as a donkey. 
a donkey being crucified. And the man off to the left there is portrayed as worshiping or offering, paying tribute to the man up on the cross. And in uh, very crude Greek underneath the picture, it says, Alexamenos worships his God. This was a picture intended to mock, intended to ridicule, and intended to dismiss the worship of a crucified Savior. To some, to many, Jesus is the very center of our lives. Jesus is the very source of our life. But to others, to others he's simply dismissed, ridiculed. And that's the theme that Peter picks up on in 1 Peter 2. He quotes, in 1 Peter 2, he quotes from this famous passage in Psalm 118. And he lays this passage alongside of two other Old Testament passages, both from the book of Isaiah. And I want to read this together in verse 4, going down to verse 8. Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has now become the capstone, the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, the cornerstone, just kind of unpack some of the uh, background here. The cornerstone for any building, especially back in those days, the cornerstone for any building was critically important. And and builders would spend uh, an inordinate amount of time trying to locate and trying to identify just the perfect cornerstone for a building. It had to be completely flawless, completely level. Because if you got the cornerstone wrong, if the cornerstone was flawed in any way, then the rest of the building that would be built on top of this cornerstone would also be flawed from the very beginning. And so they spent so much time trying to locate the perfect cornerstone. And what Peter says here. He says that Jesus is that perfect cornerstone. Upon him, everything else is built. He gives shape and direction for everything else. But in an ironic turn, the cornerstone that God has chosen has been rejected by the builders. And instead of building on this cornerstone, what they do is they trip over it. They stumble over it. They fall over it. And it seems like Peter's audience, the audience that Peter's writing this letter to, seems like they were dealing with some of that same rejection in their own lives. Just as Christ is this living stone rejected by men but chosen by God, they also, the ones receiving this letter, they also have experienced the same type of rejection in their culture. They had been rejected. They had been cast aside. But now Peter says, now he says, you are like living stones. You are like, li- you are like these living stones being built into a spiritual house, being built into a temple. Now, in order to really understand this, I need you to, uh, I need you to imagine that you lived in an ancient city like these Christians did. In, in order to really understand what Peter is saying here, that you live in a city where there's not a church on every corner, But instead, there might be a mammoth, monstrous temple on each corner. 
Temples dedicated to Zeus, temples dedicated to Apollo, temples maybe even dedicated to the emperor. And of course, you can't read this passage without also thinking about the massive temple in Jerusalem dedicated to the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the Lord. And these temples were all built with, the ex- with one express purpose in mind. The purpose was awe. Awe. That when you saw these massive structures, you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the gods are big and you are small. The gods are powerful and you are weak. The gods are way over here and you're way over here. That's what these massive structures indicated in all their power and all their majesty. And Peter in this text now, what he says should take your breath away. He says, you, little old you, This ragtag group of people that's been rejected by all the powerful, that's been rejected by all those who hold authority, you are like living stones, like bricks building up into the very temple of God. The, the, the temple of God, it's not those, those massive structures that you see all the, temple, the... The temple of God isn't these massive structures of stone. The temple of God is you. I want to show you another picture. Um, this is from the, the ancient city of Philippi. And this is a, a Christian basilica that was built probably sometime in the 6th century, the mid-6th century. And the reason I show this picture to you, I think this is a great illustration. Uh, there's actually three different types of architecture in this, uh, in this building. You see the massive marble stones around the archway, though, uh, around the archway. Those are, that's Greek architecture. These massive white marble stones. That's Greek architecture. The horizontal red brick that you see in the structure, that's Roman architecture. Uh, horizontal red brick is Roman. But in between the red lines, um, you have what, what I've been told is called rubble masonry. And our guide that day said that you always know that you're looking at a Christian building in the ancient world when you see this kind of rubble masonry. Because what they did was they picked up whatever stones were at hand. Whatever stones were laying around, whatever stones had been cast aside, they picked those up and they built them into the walls of their churches. That's why it's called rubble masonry. And I thought when when our tour guide was telling us that, I thought, what a beautiful illustration of what the church has always been. The church has always been this group of very flawed, very broken individuals, very incomplete individuals that by God's power, by God's attention, have been taken and repurposed and reclaimed, and built into the very temple of God, where God dwells. It's such an amazing, beautiful picture of what God has done. And that's, that's really what the church has always been. In Jesus' own day, he, he gathered around him a group of disciples. And these disciples were noteworthy for one and only one reason. These disciples were noteworthy because of their unnoteworthiness. They were unschooled, ordinary men, just ordinary people. But yet, they turned the world upside down. And that's a picture of the church. Peter takes it one step further in this passage. He says, sacrifices and praise, sacrifices and praise aren't being offered on your behalf by a professional class of priests either. So he says, not only are you the temple, but you're also the priests inside the temple. You now offer spiritual sacrifices, he says. You worship, you praise God. I'm going to return to that here in a second. 
Now, I know this is a lot to digest. I know this is a lot to take in. I know there's a lot of imagery here, a lot of pictures here. So let me just kind of take a step backward before we take a step forward. Go back and summarize where we've been over the last few weeks, okay? Can we do that? Two weeks ago, Mark preached from 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's the message. Here's the message from two weeks ago. Jesus has given you, Jesus has given me, a lasting inheritance, a real inheritance. And because of that, I now can live in hope. And so can you. That was week one. Week two, last week, the message was Jesus has made us holy. Jesus has made us clean. Jesus has made us pure. And so now I've been freed to pursue a life of holiness. I've been called to be holy as he is holy. That was last week. Now this week, here's the message. Jesus has given us a new identity. He's given you, he's given me, he's given us a new identity as his people. And so now, because of that, we can live new lives of his purpose. And there's a strong relationship, if you think about it, there's a very strong relationship between identity, who you are, And your purpose, what you do. There's a very strong relationship between identity and purpose. Let me just give you an illustration of this. Last week, uh, I don't even remember what day it was, uh, but last week, my son and I, we went into the backyard, I put up a tent, and we spent the night in a tent in our backyard. So we camped out. He'd been asking to do this for several weeks. Finally, I was home. We weren't really doing it. It was a perfect night. Just went out and, and camped out. Now, if you, if you explained that to, like, an alien, or you explained that to someone who wasn't familiar with the concept of camping at all, it, it, it sounds really strange. So you go and you lay in your backyard underneath a fabric covering, and you're laying on the hard ground, sweating, Killing spiders, you know, um, and, and the whole time that this is happening, you're literally 20 feet away from your nice, soft bed in an air-conditioned house. This makes no sense. This is dumb, okay? And, but for me on that night, you know what? It was the right thing to do. Why? Because as a dad, as a dad, in in that identity that I have, it was more important in that moment to spend that time with my son than it was to be inside in my comfortable bed in my air-conditioned house. My identity as a dad gave shape to my purpose, what I wanted to do. And that's just me, that's just our, you know, but you have your own thing. Your identity, who you are, it shapes the things that you do, the things that you don't do. Identity and purpose are very closely related. There was an advertising campaign um, in, uh, in Texas several years ago. They were having all sorts of trouble with highway littering. Really big problem with it. And they did some studies on this, and they found that the worst, uh, the worst litterers were young men between the ages of 18 and 30. These were the worst litterers. And so they thought to themselves, well, how can we reach them? How can we challenge them to stop littering? And what they did was they tapped into their sense of identity. Young men between the ages of 18 and 30 living in the state of Texas are very proud of of the fact that they're Texans. Okay, we're Texans. This is who we are. This is where we live. We're Texans. And so this was their advertising campaign. Real Texans don't mess with Texas. 
Real Texans don't mess with Texas. And you know what happened to the littering? It plummeted. It plummeted. Because they understood the relationship between someone's identity, who they are, or who they believe they are, and what their purpose is, or the things that they do. And so it's, it's with this in mind, the relationship between identity and purpose, that I want to read the next two verses in this text. Because in these next two verses, verses 9 and 10, Peter brings together this sense of identity and our sense of purpose. You with me? So verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I need to take you again back to the Old Testament. There's a lot of Old Testament in this passage, I know. But I need to take you back again to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. In Exodus 19, Israel has just been liberated from slavery. They've just been rescued, and God is getting ready to bring them into the promised land, finally. And here's what God tells them in Exodus 19. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant out of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so Peter, in this text, takes this well-known passage in Exodus, and he gives it a new meaning. In the book of Exodus, God tells Israel, you are my treasured possession. The Hebrew word there, it's one, it's one of the most powerful words in the whole Old Testament. It's the word segula, which means you are my covenantal treasured possession. You're the most valuable, important thing to me. I'm binding myself to you. And Peter says, in Jesus, that's who you are. You are God's most treasured possession. He also says, in verse 10, that we are the people of God. That we are the people of God. And the word people in this text was not chosen by accident. To us, people of God, it looks very generic. It looks very ordinary, right? People of God. But this word people had a very specific meaning all the way through the Old Testament. Um, I teach Greek at Ozarks, one of the, one of the classes that I teach. So I'm, I'm really interested in language. I'm, I'm really interested on how language changes through the years. It's kind of fascinating to me. I, di- I did a little bit of homework this week, and I found several words that in English have almost completely changed their meaning from their original. So now when we use these words, it means kind of the opposite of what they originally meant. Like, for instance, the word nice, the word nice, originally it comes from a Latin word which means not to know. And so a nice person was an ignorant or an uninformed person. Uh, The word awful literally means full of awe. It used to be associated with anything that was amazing, anything that was delightful, anything that was wonderful was awful. And now it means completely the opposite. Um, The word artificial. Artificial originally meant something that was full of artistic or technical skill was an artificial something or other. And now it means something completely the opposite. The word elope. The word elope originally meant to run away from your husband. (laughs) To run away from your husband and into an illicit affair. That's what eloping originally meant. Um, The word grin, the word grin originally meant to scowl, to show the teeth like you're angry. That was a grin. 
Um, and this is my favorite one, the word diaper. Um, the word diaper comes from a Greek word, diaspros, which means pure white. So there you go. But this word, the people of God, the people of God, a word that, again, to us looks so generic, so ordinary. You need to understand that in the Old Testament, this word people was used for a very special group of people. It was only used for the nation of Israel. It was never used for anyone that was outside of Israel. It was a special word, a special category. But there's this hope, there's this anticipation that winds its way throughout the Old Old Testament that that this category, the people of God, will one day be expanded. And we find this especially in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 2, in the Old Testament, it says, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And so Peter, in this text, Peter is saying that the promise of Hosea has been fulfilled in you. You are no longer separated from God. You're no longer distant from God. You are now his people. Now, this text, this text challenges, I think, the lie that on one hand tells us that we're worthless. I mean, there are plenty of people, right, that that's, that's how they understand themselves. That's their identity. I'm worthless. I have no value. I have no meaning. I have no purpose. But I, I'm just worthless. And this text says, no, that's a lie. It's a lie. You're God's treasured possession. You're being built in his temple. You are the people of God. It's a lie. But there's another lie that some of us tell ourselves too, and I call this the lie of false self-worth. The lie that says, yeah, I'm something. I'm something good. And I've built myself into something. I'm valuable. I'm precious. I'm, I'm worthwhile. But we build up this identity independent of God, and we think that we can make of ourselves something independent of the cornerstone. And this text says that's a lie too. I think... What Peter is saying here is that we, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, we have for the first time been given true worth, true identity. But that leads, and I need to make this quick transition, that leads to the critical question of purpose. If that's our identity, if that's who we are, then what is our purpose? What have we been called to? And I think the key to understanding this purpose is found in one word that Peter uses twice in this passage. It's the word priesthood. Peter says that your purpose is that you have been called to the priesthood. Every single person who is a follower of Jesus Christ has been called into this royal priesthood. We are priests in service of the king. If you're a follower of Jesus, okay, you have been sent into ministry. Whether you realize it or not, a lot of you are thinking, priest, that's weird, that's strange, I'm not a priest. Are you kidding me? Peter says that's exactly what you are. Think think about what a priest is. Think about what a priest does, how a priest functions, okay? A priest serves a very important function, especially to the people that Peter was writing to. A priest was a bridge, a living link, a living link. The priest represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. A priest formed that link, that bridge between a living God and his people, But in the day and age that Peter lived in, the priesthood was a special elite category of religious person. Okay, not just anybody could call themselves a priest. It wasn't even something that you could go to school for. It was something that you had to be born into. 
But Peter says, no, 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 no. In Christ Jesus, you're all priests. Every single one of us. You're a priest. I'm a priest. You may not look like a priest. You may look like a banker. You may look like a nurse. You may look like a teacher. You may look like a mom. You may look like a dad. But you're a priest. You've been called, as a part of the people of God, you've been called to be this living, walking, talking bridge, this link between God and the world. To declare the praises of God in your life every day, to declare the praises of God in an increasingly dark world. That's your purpose. That's what you've been called to. You've been called to the priesthood. Now, the world, or I'm sorry, the church, has any number of different ways that it responds to the world, doesn't it? There are all sorts of different ways that Christians have chosen to respond to the world. Some Christians choose to respond to the world with what I call isolation. The world freaks us out. So we run away. We hide. We try to isolate ourselves as much as we possibly can from the world. Some Christians, on the other hand, choose to respond to the world with what I call accommodation. We want to look, act, talk, and think as close to the world as possible. We want, to there, we want there to be as little difference as possible between us and the world. So we just kind of try to blend in. Some Christians will take another approach, an approach of hostility. Just fight the world every chance we get. Put our dukes up. We'll just go at it. We'll just fight the world. And listen, each one of those approaches may be appropriate at times. But each one of those appropriates is ultimate, or each one of those approaches is ultimately insufficient in and of itself. Because you can't be an effective priest if you're isolated from the world. You can't. You can't be an effective priest if you are isolating yourselves from the very ones that God desperately wants to speak truth to. You can't be an effective priest if you're blending in. If you look, act, think, and talk just the same way that everybody else does, there has to be something about a priest that's distinct, that's different, that points to the goodness and the holiness of God. You can't be, you can't be an effective priest if you're just hostile. I will never understand Christians who think that it's an effective strategy to introduce people to the love of Christ by telling them first that God hates them. An effective priest is one who simply, passionately, and intentionally goes into a thirsty world and says, we found water. This is what you've been called to. This is your purpose, people. You have been reclaimed. You have been given a new identity. You are the people of God, treasured, loved by him, but called to what? For what purpose? Just to go through the motions? or to go into the world as priests, introducing people to the love and the salvation of God. I, I want to close today with two questions. Two questions. First question. Are you stumbling over Jesus? That's where we started the message. Some of you, that's you. You're stumbling over, you're tripping over, you're fighting, you're resisting, maybe even ridiculing the very one who wants to save you, the very one who is the source of life. Are you tripping over Jesus today? I want to encourage you to talk to somebody about that. There's going to be people around these tables with, with uh, the lamps on them. Take this as an opportunity today 
to go and talk to somebody about who is this Jesus really that I keep on tripping over, that I keep on stumbling over? How do I build my life on him? The second question that I want to ask though is this. How has God uniquely positioned you to be a priest in your world? In what places and to what people is God calling you to shine the light in a dark world?